to Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 22. Uh, so we're recording this directly after the 2005 one we probably would have released about a week ago from this. Um, and basically, in the process of researching the 2005 one, I tapped into a lot of nostalgia, a lot of, you know, stuff that I'd got into at that age. And there's a man I want to cover who I don't think we'd ever cover in another way because they don't, bar possibly one, don't really have that landmark brilliant album or enough of a place in history to really have an interesting effect but were absolutely life-changing for me when I found them at the time so and this is based around the 2005 album Doomsday Machine we're going to dedicate a whole episode to Arch Enemy or particularly kind of Doomsday Machine backwards and a little bit further on Mm. unfortunately I'm just not so into the last few albums so we'll touch on them but won't go into too much detail so this will be more the Johan and Angela years of the band um yeah so for me I got into in Doomsday Machine era 2005 this was like I think must have been their sixth album um and basically, I saw their video for Nemesis on TV, mm. one of their quite famous songs. Like, Rob and this is completely an expert, much like the Hypocrisy episode. <laughs> He's being dragged along for the ride and will scorn some of it and enjoy other bits, yeah. I imagine. Well, it's, it's certainly, <clears throat> certainly bits of Arch Enemy that I really enjoy. Um, it was just one of those things which I came to a little bit too late. At this point, I was already into sort of Vader and Death and Bathory and Celtic Frost. And it was sort of like, oh, Arch Enemy, some of that sounds pretty cool. Uh, and I have no reason to buy an album, so I've always sort of passed them by because I already liked a lot of more extreme death metal because I found it in a weird way. Yeah, whereas for me, so, um, I, as I say, I saw Nemesis on TV and had the greatest fan. Andrew on that video looks fucking terrifying. Um, mm. The music sounded really fast and heavy, and I just couldn't deal with it. So I, I, <laughs> I turned it off and went away. I was like, oh, yeah. And then realised, for like three days later, I had the chorus stuck in my head. <laughs> to the point where it was in my head so much, I was like, I have to buy the album. Then I bought the album, and it suddenly made sense. And then, <laughs> and it was the first album I got that was entirely screen vocal-led. Mm, and then that mm. opened up the world as like, oh, like I can listen to albums that are all screen vocals. I think, I think it's a really important moment when you're getting into extreme metal. of The moment where harsh vocals finally click for you because they're the thing mm. which everyone has a problem with you can show them the most like interesting instrumentation where people will really like it like Opeth and Sham Opeth and they just everyone will complain about the bits of the harsh vocals because they're difficult they're not an easy thing to get into and appreciate you don't know what's going on you can't hear what's being said um, but that moment where you find the band where it works for you where it sort of fits in and then suddenly you have this whole world of music that you can get into because you get these style of vocals yeah. and that's why I think bands like Arch Enemy these kind of what you call like gateway bands are really important mm. for being that bridge for finding that that album you can get people over the hurdle of screen vocals yeah. over the hurdle of super yeah. fast drumming or massively detuned guitars and start understanding the mm interest and depth and complexity there is in yeah. in extreme metal. And this is a weird aside, but I found sort of full-on double bass drumming really, really difficult to understand. I couldn't get it for a very long yeah. time. I remember listening to some Judas Priest, like Painkiller, when I was getting a Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, and I, just, I could not get the full-on double bass. I found it, it took me so long to get over that hurdle, which is really weird because it's not... You know, it's in more genres than just metal. It's, yeah, I mean, yeah. in, me- in metal, it's more sort of at the front and center and for entire songs. But that was one of those weird hurdles that I got over, and then finally, oh yeah, I can enjoy all this stuff with double bass drums in it now. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Like, so I think with this, we'll probably 
just do a straight through, go for an order and focus on the bits that... And again, nostalgia is going to play so much a part of this. Possibly what I'm saying are the real highlight bits. Uh, like, view, viewed completely from outside might not look the same. Again, this would be one to let us know in the comments of, like, yeah, whether whether this this changed your mind on Arch Enemy at all. I've just listened to some bits of it, and I'm feeling pretty won over on, was it... Wages of Sin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it sounded really great. Yeah, so we'll, like, I'll try and make the case here for there being some amazing moments in their career. So, mm. Arch Enemy has always been Michael Amott's creation. He's the lead guitarist and live backing vocalist, and... He so his history with with music is Swedish guy got into the death metal scene very early on was on those classic Carnage demos Carnage later became Dismember, um, he was poached by Carcass for their classic two albums Necroticism and Heartwork, mm. and added his his very seventies uh, influenced lead guitar stylings to that kind of heavier sound and you know interestingly those albums you can see Bill Steer and Mike embracing some older melodic influences to sort of make a more accessible version of mm, what early Carcass mm. was. Eventually, uh, he left Carcass for whatever reason and struck out on his own, doing two things. Initially, Spiritual Beggars, his kind of 70s throwback kind of classic rock project with, as mentioned in the previous episode, Pierre Weirberg, uh, Opeth's brief uh, keyboard player. But a bunch of different interesting vocalists as well, like loads of really cool guys have been in there. Oh yeah, like uh, the Spice, who was a great vocalist, but I think that's pretty much all he did. And got yeah, himself being was, too um, drunk. Uh, JB, JB from, from Grand Magus, yeah, he's really cool. A uh, guy from Firewind now, he's a very good vocalist. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, Michael Lambert's been involved in some amazing projects, like the early, early Carnage demo is really cool, I <laughs> really like that. <laughs> that is a classic um, if you haven't checked it out, like yeah. one of those brilliant, like, early Swedish scene mm. ones. Obviously, Carcass are incredible. Yeah. Those two albums as well, really great. But yeah, they're, they're kind of in that realm of, if you like extreme metal, you've got to have at least heard these. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so he gathered together a band with his much younger brother, uh, Chris, on also on lead guitar. Chris, um, I think, was raised in the UK. So, like, yeah, and is significantly younger. So, quite different walks of life. And I think very much was kind of the backup guy to Mike's writing in this. Mm. Um, not straight away. Um, so initially on the first album, they got on Johan Lever to play bass and do vocals and uh, trial protege drummer Daniel Erlinson, younger brother of Adrian Erlinson, who's famed for a load of things, like most like Cradle of Filth and stuff mm. like that. Um, Daniel was from the Swedish band Eucharist, who is amazingly more technical than they should ever have been able to be band of teenagers who made two really good albums um a velvet creations the one i'd really highly recommend it's been in a million and one other things like he's briefly in flames i think this kind of overlaps mm. um with with stuff as well at this point and like that became the core of arch enemy for the first album problem with this was johan couldn't actually play bass all that well so although credited in the album booklet we're playing bass he, uh, Michael actually had to do it all. <laughs> so the first album, uh, Black Earth, came out um, 1996. So this is well after the death metal boom. This is essentially when metal was kind of falling apart um, in in many senses. Like this, they were making a melodic death metal album after kind of melodic death metal had hit its peak, mm, mm. Um, and thus kind of it, it didn't really land to much. 
much a reaction, really. Like, maybe some Carcass fans holding on for it. But, like, the whole album is a kind of interesting thing, but it never quite works for me. Like, so, he's going clearly, like, Mike's really taking off from where Heartwork left off, the melodic death metal, and going more, like, trying to fuse that with more lead guitar, more, um, more like of his 70s influences. Like, he... He's a real big fan of like Michael Schenker and Yuli John Roth. Mm, like he mm. wants to play that kind of style of lead, but over some more intense music yeah. a la carcass. The problems you have with Black Earth though is there's a lot of ideas thrown at it, and you can tell they haven't quite worked out what kind of band they want to be. There's a lot of songs that have just bizarre transitions in them. Like so one I quite like, but it, it doesn't make any sense, is a track called Cosmic Retribution, where it's like a normal death metal song up to the middle eight, where it does a really fast, I think Chris does a really fast, aggressive solo. And then everything drops out, and you get a Spanish guitar solo <laughs> over like an acoustic guitar backing, and then just quite abruptly more death metal. Yeah. I think it's a thing we talk about quite a lot, is with a lot of bands who have strange transitions between different genres. We just talked about it with Opeth and things like that. There's a real art to doing that well. Sometimes even when it seems abrupt, you can still make that work for the song. Yeah. And then when you hear bands, again, I don't really know this album, but you do hear bands who do sort of these stylistic changes, and then sometimes it just doesn't work for the song at all, and it feels, it takes you out of the song rather than dragging you further in. But yeah, like a lot of this album smacks of young, inexperienced musicians. And I know Mike had a lot of experience, but the rest of the bands, like Chris and Johan, were completely new to recording at this point in time. Other thing that massively lets it down and will let down on the next three albums is Johan's vocals are shite. Like, I can't... I, I really enjoy, especially the next two albums, but I'm ignoring him throughout. I'm like, if you're someone who can't switch off from a bad vocalist, I don't know that you'd ever be able to quite get your head round these albums. Like, I just showed Rob him, because yeah. Rob hadn't heard him before. Yeah, like, it's um, it's difficult. It's sort of like, it's you take something similar to Bolt Thrower, or maybe even Celtic Frost, like early sort of harsh vocals before they're really formed into this very formulaic sort of death metal growl, and you remove all the grit from it. And that's what you've got. It's just someone sort of talking, half shouting in a vaguely angry manner. And it, it's kind of hilarious at times. And it never really carries the power that you'll particularly get with Angela Gosso, who's an amazing vocalist. Uh, but you'll get with death metal in general. Is it just, well, extreme metal just has a power to it. And it, it really doesn't have any of that. Yeah. So, so there's some really good moments on this. Stuff that actually still fits in the live set. So you've got Dark Insanity, the second track, has this brilliant like Daniel Ernst drum intro where he's just going, doing like, these crazy fills over quite a fast death metal riff. It's a really decent track. And then you have Fields of Desolation, which has one of the best leads Mike's ever come up with on it. Like, this really beautifully catchy thing, which we'll go into in the live stuff later of what they eventually did with this. There's also a really nice instrumental time capsule. It's only a minute long, and it's like a really gentle, clean guitar lead over acoustic guitar, which is something Arch Enemy touch on loads throughout their career. So there's ideas here that are eventually going to become a thing, but it's just not fully realised on this album. And yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to see where they were at this point in time, but I feel it just didn't quite work. So that leads us on to Stigmata, which is probably the highlight of the Johan years. So it comes out two years later, 1998. So we have a bit of a messy thing going on here, where Daniel Lundson leaves the band for whatever reason. I'm not sure what he was in at the time. So we get uh, Peter Wilder on drums, and Martin... Bengston on bass, who 
both of those are only on this album. And actually, uh, uh, I'm not quite sure the reason for this, but Peter didn't seem to be able to play the drums for the first track, Beast of Man. So Daniel's right. come back and recorded the drums. He plays <laughs> drums on the first track, and the drums are noticeably more complex. It's yeah, like yeah. the fastest, most intense song on the album. So with with this album, Jan's vocals notwithstanding, um, everything's up to one. Like the songs are faster, they're more aggressive, they're heavier, but the structure is getting more complex. Songs are getting longer. We're going from three to four minute songs to some like seven, eight minute long songs. Also, the instrumentals are more blended into the whole feel of the album. It's two instrumental tracks. They both flow perfectly between. Um, I'd say this is like one of their more consistent albums if you can deal with the vocals. And you've got tracks like Tears of the Dead, which is like a, a lovely six-minute-long melodic death metal song, loads of super memorable, catchy riffs. Bridge of Destiny, the closer, is like a four-minute mellow death song with a three-minute... like beautiful dueling guitars a lead outro thing which mm. is just like one of those things arch enemy can nail like no other band of like really almost excessive soloing but done tastefully <laughs> and, and uh, this is what this album excels at so to give you kind of impression of what they sound like we're going to play the first track beast of man which is a blast fest then into a beautiful melodic solo and yeah, like yeah, it was interesting for me to come back to Arch Enemy in this, and then hear some actual blast beats in some of their songs because I mm. a lot of the stuff I've heard is the more catchier songs, a lot of which have videos and are played live really often, stuff like that. I hadn't really heard many of the ones that got blast beats in, so that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So this might, if you only know newer singles, surprise you with how heavy it is. Also, trying to pay too much attention to the vocals. <laughs>
after that, we get into very quickly released after that, uh, 1999's Burning Bridges, which is the point where the lineup kind of solidified. We get a lot of members appearing in the band that are long standing um, members. So Daniel Ernson comes back on drums. We get uh, Charlie D'Angelo on bass. Um, Charlie D'Angelo, who's also been in Spiritual Beggars, The Night Flight Orchestra, Witchery, Merciful Fate, King Diamond, Dismember. He seems to be an amazing hired gun. Of he's only done like one album with each mm. of these bands, but he seems to be a great like. That's a, that's a pretty awesome list of bands to put on a CV or something. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's not on any of the classics of any of them, no, but, but still, the combination of being with Dismember and then King Diamond and Merciful Fate. That's yeah, that's quite something. And he has the best stage presence of the band because he's a fucking giant with like really long black hair mm, uh, mm. and just very good at headbanging. Yeah, but yeah, so he's coming on bass. So you've got that solidified rhythm section who will remain. The room section to this day. Chris Amott's still on uh, lead guitar with Brother Mike leading the band. And then this is Johan's final album with the band. Now, they do something bizarre on this album. So after Stigmata, quite an aggressive, heavy album. Burning Bridges opens with The Immortal. Very much in the vein of Stigmata. Like, fast, heavy. Like, really, like some of the fastest riffs they've done up to this date. Breaks into an amazing, melodic, solo both Mike and Chris have some really memorable melodic solos trading off in this part. Then, the rest of the album suddenly turns into like this classic rock influence thing, where it's like, it's easily the least heavy album they've ever done, barring mm-hmm. that first track. Interesting. It's not bad, per se. It's just bizarre. So there's like, just one sort of full-on death well, metal track, and then... then... Then you go into these tracks that are all like beautiful lead guitar over yeah. like quite relatively lightweight riffing yeah all kind of lends the idea you probably want a clean singer because Johan's vocals you would have just heard really discernible they're just not that forceful or aggressive but they're not they're not clean either they're not yeah yeah Yeah. this kind of almost this this like there's songs in this which could have made more sense in Spiritual Beggars Mm. now I don't have a problem with them I do think it's quite good tails off quite badly in the second half but like a lot of early tracks like uh, Dead Inside and The Pilgrim are really good. Forementioned The Immortal and Demonic Science are all excellent. Silverwing jumps the shark and has the dumbest lead guitar riff. Like, it has a lead guitar riff so cheesy it's actively funny. <laughs> um, but through all of this, like Arch Enemy were doing terrible in Europe and America. But for the Johan years, they got massively picked up in Japan because... They're a modern band with old-school classic rock influences mm, mm. mixed with something new, fresh, and lively. And this lead guitar playing, I think, was enough for the Japanese audience to massively latch on. Thus, they got enough popularity to keep the ball rolling, keep things going, and keep these super-talented, like, hired gun members they had, like Daniel and uh, Charlie, were incredible gets for the band because yeah. these guys could have been in any kind of place. And so... To bring us to a close on the Johan uh, years, we get Burning Japan Live 1999, which is an amazing collection of 11 tracks from that era of the band. And it's a great selection, like loads of my favourites, like um, Dark Insanity, previous mentioned, The Immortal, um, got Beast of Man, Bridge of uh, Destiny from Stigmaster. It's a really good collection of songs. Problem is, and this will... This kind of perfectly showcases this. 
Johan was fired from the band for poor live performances. Oh. And this is a typifying example. <laughs> the rest of the band are on full form, perfectly played. Like, the lead guitars are great. Like, the rhythm sections are heavy. But Johan just sounds even worse than he does on the studio um, albums. Yeah. It's a fun... It is a really fun album, but yeah... It was clear at this point something was needed to give this band like the shot in the arm to get them some yeah, popularity yeah. again, really going somewhere. Then we come to 2001 Wages of Sin. So, from the band Asmodina, who, um, relatively unremarkable death metal band, if not for the fucking incredible vocals. Um, vocalist Angela Gosso was poached for them. Uh, this uh, young German woman who just has this guttural, brutal as fuck voice. Like, the uh, Asmodina album, she goes way lower than you would hear mm-hmm. on any other stuff. Like, she's recorded with, say, Arch Enemy. She, yeah, she's got a really impressive range as well. Angela Gossa has been, yeah, she's a fantastic vocalist mm. I've known about for a long time. Um, and she can do these really high, sort of like, carcass on steroids type screams and go all the way down to these super low vocals. And, yeah, she's fantastic. She's an amazing stage presence as well. Oh, she's, God, she's yeah, yeah. great to watch. So, really huge force of personality injected into the band at this point. Yeah, it, absolutely. Like, the, the transition is incredible. So, she really injects something into the band. It, like... The next album, Wages of Sin, is by far and away their best album, in my opinion. Like, everything just came together perfectly. And we get some really interesting uh, uh, changes, like, coming in. Um, So, with Angela coming in, the vocals get heavier, harsher. So, the band have clearly stepped up. Because both Michael and Chris writing riffs with Arch Enemy. So, the kind of writing process with Arch Enemy is... Charlie and Daniel do what they're told, as far as I can see. Mm. Um, Michael probably comes up with a lion's share of it, but what he said Chris was really good for back in the day is he'd come up with a, like one of his melodic lead passages, which is what like, you know he's known for, mm. and Chris could work out the perfect chord pattern to fit that. Oh, cool. So they write in a bizarre way where they come up with the leads before... And then write the riffs to go yeah, with it. Yeah, which yeah. Is, is not saying I'm used to at all, but yeah, so... Um, that happens, and on top of that, Angela's influence, she has a lot more sway, it would seem, because like she was so important for their live show mm, than mm. Johan ever did. And the thing I've always heard about this album was she got them to cut down the amount of solos in it. Okay, like, say, yeah. a track like yeah. The Single Ravenous was meant to be so much more full of lead guitar, but she said, nah, it's too much, let's pull it back. And it definitely works for the benefit of this album. The lead guitar is really tasteful in this album. It just makes something that's tighter and more focused, I guess, mm. as well. Uh, yeah, and add that to having vocals which now emphasise things and you've got a really nice package. Yeah, yeah. Um, so everything is just stepped up a notch. It is, this album, 12 tracks, uh, oh no, sorry, 11 tracks, and start to finish is near perfect. We've got four absolute live staples that I think are still in the setlist today of the intro, Enemy Within, um, and starting the trend they'll do for a few albums, having really good intros to their albums. So Enemy Within starts with like this kind of gentle, slightly off keyboard passage, and then like a drum beat slowly building in, and then just all chaos comes mm, in. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. Then Burning Angel, which is just great use of melodic leads to, to make a super catchy song, and with Andrew Gosso's vocals blasting forth in it, it just it just works so perfectly. The single Ravenous, and then you've got uh like Absolute live classic where everyone gets a bit of a solo, dead bury their dead, 
which is one of the heaviest songs they've ever written, and it's just fucking crushing. Mm. And has a little bass solo. Like, this album is getting, we get to hear Charlie Shelf a bit for the first time. Like, he has little things where he breaks away from the others, and just a little touch of the bass mm. really help. There's moments, I think, you've shown me some of these songs beforehand, and like, where you've, you've got these really crushing death metal influences, but you've also, like, it's almost bits where I feel like that's almost a black metal riff. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, you changed a few things up that you, that could pass off as, like, a black metal riff, and that's really cool to see those influences in there as well, because Angela Gosso could easily fit as a black metal vocalist too, because she's got these really nice sort of high mid screams. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Also, uh, the interesting is, this is the first album they've recorded in C tuning, like the lowest they went, mm. and this has been Arch Enemy's tuning from, from then on. This album is the point where they find their sound, also I'd argue possibly the point where they perfect their sound. Like, so this album has a load of tracks you'll never see live anymore, like, um, First Deadly Sin or Savage Messiah, which are beautifully catchy, really well written. Say um, Savage Messiah is slow and sinister. Um, First Deadly Sin is just crushing. Like it's even faster than Dead Barrier Dead, and it's just non-stop. And then the only breathing room you get is like quick melodic, quick well-written melodic solo. It's, it's just exactly <laughs> yeah, what yeah. you want. And if you go out and buy the disc of this now, it now comes with a second disc of all the Japan bonus tracks from the previous three albums. Oh, cool. So we've got some really good stuff in there, like an amazing cover of Europe's Scream and Anger. Oh, that's it's, really, it's really good. Yeah. It's really decent. And a track called Diva Satanica from the Black Earth Sessions, which is like better than any track on Black Earth. <laughs> and I can't understand why it's... So, so do they have Angela Gosso doing vocals and all of these tracks? So no, or... these are all... They are the Japan Just bonus. The, oh, okay. So yeah. Yeah. they are all the bonus tracks that were on the special editions of the old albums, mm. but they're all collected as like an eight-track extra album. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, just a really decent yeah. package. This, if you're going to get into Archer, you just buy this and start with it because it is by far and away in the mm. high point. So, because it doesn't get to see the light of day all that much um, anymore, I'm going to show uh, the first Deadly Sin off this album.
song we're going to go going to. This one is massively famous because it has the single "Everyone Knows" on it, which is "We Will Rise," which even Rob yeah. probably yeah. knows quite well yeah, by yeah, now. Uh, so yeah, "Anthems of Rebellion" is an interesting one. It, it's an album I wish I liked more than I did. Um, starts with a great intro. It sounds even heavier than the pre- predecessor. But the problem with it is, and I hate to criticise them for doing this, but this seems to be the album where they experimented on. They tried loads and loads of new things. And the problem is that not a lot of them worked. There's So there's loads of interesting ideas. So the album starts really strong. Got a cool intro track into Silent Wars, which is very much in the vein of um, First Every Soon we heard earlier. Balls to the Wall, like, just absolutely fast death metal breaks into a brilliant solo. I've just, I've just got Dave Mustaine in my head saying, Silent Wars! <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and then, then we're into We Will Rise, which, you know, has become their anthem ever since. Mm, and yeah. rightly so, it's brilliant. Like, uh, I'm sick sick to death of it, but when I first heard it, I thought it was a Yeah, all of the, a lot of these ones which are really famous suffer from that thing of just being overplayed too much. But yeah, I remember hearing this one. We watched the video a long time ago. Yeah, really cool song. Yeah, yeah. And, it, like, it then just starts to tail off. You get Dead I See No Future, which is another live staple. It's a pretty good song. I've never thought it's quite up there with some of the tracks like Ravenous, but that's me. And then we hit Indistinct and Leader of the Rats and so on. And we're just these are all just slightly not as good melodic death metal songs. Then the album just starts going weird with, like, adding loads of keyboards in, um, lots of little instrumentals that are kind of quite detached from everything. We get a couple of songs that have no solos, which is bizarre for Arch Enemy. Chris does some clean vocals on this album. Oh, right. It is all sorts of ideas, but they're just none of them result in a particularly great track. Mm, mm. Like the whole of Leader of the Rats, uh, Angela does the, most the song with this like weird like gurgling effect on her vocals, which right. it sounds kind of cool, but it just it's never as guttural or horrible as that effect would make you want the song to be. Yeah, yeah. And it just something about it doesn't sit that that well. Like one of the real highlights of this is actually the two minute um mainly acoustic guitar led, uh marching on a dead end road, which is just really great little instrumental. Mm, mm. Um and the album closes with Saint and the Sinners, which again, it just feels like, oh this was almost great. Like but something about it doesn't quite click. Like, Pierre Weirberg does really good efforts as the guest keyboard player throughout it, really adds something to the dynamics of it. And Andy Sneep's done a really good job with the production. It's a very heavy, oppressive album. It's just not that good. Like, <laughs> and I don't know why. And this is the thing I want to get into more with, like, sort of... Because I've gone through, like, for the researchers, I've gone through and listened to everything by them. I'm going from the stuff I know and knew and loved from a kid trying to reappraise that mm. versus the newest stuff that I never really got into. And what, the question I wanted to kind of answer with Arch Enemy is, have they changed or have I? And <laughs> so Wages of Sin is the kind of cementing of the formula. And we kind of see that formula kind of move and shift over so slightly. Anthems of the Rebellion is just the one where they sort of offshoot from it. And then straight afterwards, uh, we're like, they're going to Doomsday Machine. And it's like, they just go back to the formula. Like This was their one striving out. And they never really do it again because it didn't quite work. I think I think the answer to those questions, though, like as it often is, is both. 
you know, like bands like Arch Enemy have definitely changed. You listen through, there's a lot of differences and there's natural evolution. There's very few bands, I guess recently we talked about Bolt Throw and Vader, maybe being some of the bands which don't really change. Or they, I mean, even they still change. They only really ACDC never changes. Yeah, you know, yeah. Motorhead. Yeah. And, and that gets boring after a while. Mm. But there's definitely a change if you go back and look at some of the albums which get you into this sort of thing. Um, and particularly thinking about the idea of more gateway bands, like sometimes Arch Enemy or Trivium are maybe thought of like that. Definitely a huge difference in how you view them once you're sort of in too deep in the realm of extreme metal and stuff like that. You do view these things very differently. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was interesting going back, seeing what bits I rated that mm. I now kind of had issue with yeah. so bet- actually before we get into Doomsday Machine we had the Dead Eye Scene Future EP which is a relatively disposable EP of live tracks and a couple of covers one of the covers is a carcass cover which is the most pointless which, which song do they cover <laughs> Incarnate Solve and Abuse alright so how I found carcass so that's cool that's yeah. good but it's not as good as the original <laughs> and sounds identical yeah, um, yeah. also Symphony of Destruction by Megadeth which is a great oh, cover oh that's a fantastic cover I know that one it's so good and my personal favourite Man of War's Kill with Power Kill with Power <laughs> <It's> re- <laughs> that sounds really good Death Metal Kill with Power is well worth checking out um, <laughs> but yeah so after like I mean that's just a fun little offshoot Afterwards, we get into Doomsday Machine, which is a 2005 release. As I say, this album was so life-changing to me at the time, because I just never got into an album like this before. And and looking back in hindsight, it's far from perfect. It's a massively flawed album. But my God, I used to listen to this through every single day. For about four months, I listened to this album <laughs> every single day. I would like air guitar to all the solos yeah, on yeah. this album. I was so utterly obsessed with it. Now, looking back in hindsight, it's much like Wages of Sin. It's full of a very similar template of mostly straightforward and light death metal mm. songs, mostly sticking to the kind of verse, chorus, middle eight structure, a couple of little departures. There's a, two interesting instrumentals on it. What it does really well, it has a brilliant intro. The intro track, Enter the Machine, is one of my favourite intros to an album. Well, I was ranting about this online the other day of like... Um, bands doing the minute-long intro to an album yeah, and they yeah. normally suck. <laughs> These three Arch Enemy albums in a row have a great intro and it's mm, it's something mm. they sort of stopped doing and it, I don't know why. It was like they really nailed that formula and then you get into like kind of all your classics like Nemesis and My Apocalypse which are, you know, complete live staples. Yeah, yeah ones are definitely now. I think My Apocalypse is the first one I ever heard which, mm. yeah. Really, sounds like, yeah. Really good song. Yeah, strangely enough, as a kid when I was into this, I thought it was the worst track on the album. And I disagree, and I think it's one of the better ones, but <laughs> for whatever reason at the time, yeah. I didn't really get this one so much. <laughs> then then we have Carry the Cross and I Am Legend, Out for Blood, which are two, like, just brilliant Arch Enemy songs. If you, if you like the Arch Enemy formula, they're doing it exactly right. It's mm. the build-up to super catchy but still heavy chorus, and then amazing solos, like amazing lead passages. Then we get into some sort of weird stuff in the album. It's where they try a few more experiments towards the end of this album, and actually they work a fuck side better than the last one. Hybrids of Steel is a three-minute, like, classic rock-themed instrumental, but all in C-tuning. So it all sounds ah, heavy, okay, but yeah, it's yeah. like... And it's the great kind of... Um, Great bits of lead guitar, but it's not all solos. There's like interesting bass and drum interludes, mm, and mm. yeah, it's just really, really decent. And then Mechanic God Creation, 
which is a really slow, grinding, heavy song that, as you think it's going to end, does a false ending where, like, all the... Um, all the instruments sort of hold on a like a distorted ending, and then this really fast drum fill comes in, mm. and everything comes in at twice the speed of the rest of the song. <laughs> Shreddy solo, Angela just screams and incoherent noise yeah, over yeah. it. It's like brilliant build, and finally finishes in, in Slaves of Yesterday, which is just a better version of Saints and Sinners from the previous album. Like the kind cool. of yeah. atmospheric build to an end. It's really good. Now flaws of the album: too many solos. Something like Taking Back My Soul is just solos the whole way and a noticeable difference to Wages of Sin as you were saying before yeah yeah yeah. this is why Wages of Sin always has the edge for me over this one just a little bit sort of tighter and more yeah streamlined Mm. secondly the production I showed Rob this a while back I can't remember for what reason still Andy Sneap on it Andy Sneap's been with them since like yeah since the first of the Angela Gosso albums but something about it sounds wrong Mm. the drums on this album do not sound right yeah yeah, I don't know. Particularly if you compare it to Wages of Sin as well, there's just something about it that doesn't quite land, and it's quite hard to pin down exactly what that is. Also, the bass is seemingly evaporated from the mix, mm. which is a, another always a problem. huge shame. Makes everything sound tinnier and not as heavy. Like if you have good bass and stuff, it will always sound better. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, so because you probably would have heard a lot of these tracks before I thought I'd go for a bit of a weird one off this the aforementioned Mechanic God creation just I think it's another weird Arch Enemy track where I tried something a bit different went a bit heavier than usual and I think it's a real highlight of their career but this might just be coming from me who's always massively preferred death metal to melodic death metal I, yeah, I, yeah. So, so maybe that's that's where I'm wrong like equally we want people to weigh in. Let us know what you think of, if you know Arch Enemy well, let us know what you think of their great tracks. Do you think they select the best stuff for their live purposes? Mm. Anyway, yeah, this is Mechanical Creation.
brings us into the kind of the point in time where I was completely obsessing over the band. So something that came out around that stage was the uh, the DVD Live Apocalypse. Really brilliant capturing of live show. It's kind of a bizarre one, really, because they capture a live show at the London Forum from December 2004, notably before Doomsday Machine. So mm. it comes out afterwards, but with no tracks of Doomsday Machine in it. Yeah, so they had to put yeah. another three tracks from the Doomsday Machine tour as well. <laughs> But the thing is, between these two, the guitarist, uh, Chris Amott, quits his second guitar, and we get Frederick from Opeth comes oh, right. in, yeah, yeah. or pre his kind of yeah, stint pre- with Opeth, <laughs> joins Arch Enemy. Um, so with this, this is one of my favourites of their live shows, because it's all the old stuff. There is so many tracks off of Wages of Sin in here, and lots of cool stuff off the earlier stuff. Like, we get Savage Messiah and First Deadly Sin back-to-back, in fact. The other thing we see in this is Daniel Erlinson's drum solo, which is now... He's basically only got one, but it's now become legendary because it's it's like a good song. (laughs) Which is quite something for a drum solo, yeah. He's triggered sound effects in it. Oh, cool, cool. So, and actually some of these triggered sound effects later appear in the track um, Out for Blood on Doomsday Machine. Um... (laughs) Yeah, listen out for him if you know both. But yeah, I highly recommend you watch his drum solo if you've never seen it because it's just great. <laughs> it, it has like it has all like weird atmospheric bits. Like it has an ending that sounds like Halo music. <laughs> um, that is the, the game Halo, which famously had a very good soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing we see mentioned this earlier: final track from the first album, Fields of Desolation had this brilliant lead passage in it. It was a normal song of theirs, but had just this brilliant kind of lead passage around the chorus what they realised was that is by far and away the best bit of the song mm. and their ending to all their sets now is Fields of Desolation but it's just a two minute instrumental <laughs> of that of playing with that lead oh, passage that's cool, yeah. It's, yeah, it's really good <laughs> but yeah so really decent show quite quite fun extras as well like the chats of the band like Charlie D'Angelo is really funny in the chats of the band like yeah I'd say highly worth getting yeah, no, that sounds like a really interesting one as well. Is it? Presumably, it's really well shot as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like it's not because it is two thousand and six or whatever. I think when yeah, it's done, yeah. it's not quite up to that near perfect multi-angle stuff we, we yeah, get that now. You can get nowadays, but yeah, sound quality is really good, and it, just the footage is ever so slightly more grainy than we mm, used to now. Mm. It hard, it's hardly a letdown though. If you get really nice sound quality off it, it's still absolutely fine. Yeah, so that brings us to the last album of Arch Enemies I was really excited for. And I don't know how much of this is a comment on their newer stuff and how much is just I moved on to other bands, but Rise of the Tyrant comes out in 2007. I've just got to uni at this point. I remember getting us like, I think, the second week of uni. Oh, yeah. 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 And I, know, I think I bought this in Freshers Week, which is <laughs> kind of nuts. But, um, yeah, so Frederick... Never got to record on an Arch Enemy album because oh. Chris came back and oh. they got kicked out again <laughs> and, and had to settle for joining Opeth. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Frederick. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so as Fred, uh, Chris returns to the band and we get Rise of the Tyrant. Now, automatically, <laughs> I was about to say, like, I accidentally came to this pun. 
automatically alarm bells are ringing. Because if you know Rise of the Tyrant, that album starts with alarm bells. Sorry, I did that accident. <laughs> There's not a good intro. There's just the sound of an alarm going off. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's shit. Or like a kind of air raid siren type noise. Yeah, and compared comes... to the earlier sort of intros that they've had. Yeah, and it's it's really disappointing. Oh, now, the problem with this album is it starts strong. Uh, Blood on your hands, last enemy, I will live again. Um, in this shallow grave first four tracks all really decent songs heavy aggressive but with really good melodic elements catchy memorable if the album stayed of that quality it would be brilliant but then we get to Revolution Begins and it goes too cheesy it's trying to recapture that like spirit of uh, We Will Rise trying mm, to hit yeah. another anthem like that and Archer and we will spend the rest of the career basically chasing that anthem and I Feel never guessing it again. Yeah, I mean, it sort of sounds like a similar sort of song title going for the same idea. Mm. They've they lyrically they've laid into that as their mm. thing, and this is something we haven't actually brought up. But one of the biggest flaws in Arch Enemy's band is they always have very clear, uh, understandable vocalists, but their lyrics are shite. <laughs> they, they're really not very good. And yeah, Revolution Begins feels like such teenage goth mm. poetry about <laughs> wanting to change the world. And just from that point on, the album descends into being like not so much unmemorable, but just never really hitting the mark, trying to do really anthemic songs, but with nothing to truly back them up. Yeah, like, yeah. Day You Died is just a bit too cheesy and whiny. The instrumental interlude just isn't good. I don't know what's wrong with it, but something just doesn't land. And yeah, like, and it just tails off. The end track, Vultures, is quite fun, but yeah, this this album's just nowhere near as memorable as, say, Wages, or even Anthems of Rebellion really had the edge on this mm. one. And it's it's just a shame. I, for whatever reason, this doesn't quite work as well. Now, it's not bad by any means. Like, this is a thoroughly listenable album. Like, if it's kind of thing, if like, you can find it relatively cheap. Well worth a look. Because, as I say, In the Shallow Grave or Last Enemy are really catchy tracks. Like, really good Arch Enemy stuff. Also, the thing they'll keep doing from this point, the production goes cleaner and cleaner. And Wager Sin still had the edge on that front. Although Wager Sin had its issues. The guitars, the rhythm guitars weren't quite heavy enough on Wager mm. Sin. I think Anthems is actually the peak production-wise. It just didn't quite have the songs to back yeah. it up. Yeah, Which is a shame. But, yeah. So, um, following this, we get the Rise of the Tyrant DVD, which is is brilliant. It's another... So, it's quite hot on the heels. Like, I mean, only two albums apart. But really different track listing because we've now got two more albums to chuck mm, in there. Mm. And as you'll know, if you've seen Arch Enemy Live, there are bands who well and truly put their new material um, in their live shows. So, we've got loads of um, newer tracks. But still got a few old ones. Dark Insanity's in there. Silverwing is inexplicably still in there. <laughs> I think because it's recorded in Japan. And as I say, Silverwing is upsettingly cheesy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's Japan. So they, they go in for the classic rock edge of this. So the upsettingly yeah, cheesy yeah. song. Popular there. The other thing we see is a quite similar repeat of Daniel's drum solo. Yeah, yeah. Even credited on the back of the album as well. Yeah. And Mike and Chris both have their own instrumental solos. Mm. Mike also is particularly interesting because it's based on the instrumental from the previous album, 
but it's good this time. Okay. And I, yeah. Like he just changes a few things up and it suddenly works, whereas the, the studio version's really, really dull. Hmm. Um, and Chris's solo is just. It's like well put together, but it does sound very much like a guy showing off. It's yeah. kind of. I'd rather have got First Deadly Sin or something like that in there rather than going for that, but you know. And it builds yeah. some really good clothes going through Nemesis, We Will Rise, and then the Fields of Desolation outro again. Like, it, it's a brilliantly performed set. Like, they're firing on all cylinders. The bass is really high in the mix, and Sholly even gets to introduce a song with a proper bass solo, which is uh, really awesome. good fun. Yeah. Um, and Angela's vocals are so good on this. She just sounds so aggressive, so mm. kind of controlled, and you you get to see and hear what a good front person she was. Like she is so good at whipping a crowd into a frenzy, and just yeah, like and does that weird starts that weird line of being like super positive while still fighting a death metal band, or like yeah. doing yeah. like we're all in this together kind of like I kind I kind of love that that sort of like dissonance between the incredibly aggressive sort of nihilistic outlet of death metal, and then yeah, just being really nice. I, I really enjoy that when we saw Napalm Death. Actually. Yes, yeah, yes. There's just something lovely about that, which, yeah, real feel of community from it. Yeah, and I, I think that's, that's the edge death metal always has over black metal of it's it's not an elitist club, it's more of yeah, a like... kind of, yeah, people having fun playing aggressive music. Yeah, yeah, completely. So, um, this is where, like, I really loved this DVD at the time it came out, but this is where my interest starts to wane, so... From now on, I'm going to be less and less sort of knowledgeable on what's going on. Continuing, no lineup changes as far as I know here. Um, we get the, as always, ill-advised re-recording the previous vocalist's album. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is this is the root of all evil. Now, as we've mentioned, um, like... Johan was not a good vocalist. Angelo is so streets ahead of him. I mean, honestly, Angelo is streets ahead of most death metal mm. vocalists. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. I would happily make the case for her being in like my top ten ever. And as in mm. without the nostalgia thing, like she's not been on the best albums ever, but she was seriously skilled. Yeah. yeah. Um But yeah, this album the production's really sterile and the older albums had a cool lo fi thing going on. Um, the vocal performance is incredible, but the rest of it just doesn't... It just feels like a band going through the motions. The, oh, sorry. Right. So, yeah, is, is this a selection of tracks from the earlier albums? Yeah, 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 off all three. Yeah, just sort of picking out the best ones and then re-recording them. Picking out the best ones, although Tears of the Dead is lacking. Okay. Yeah. Which I think is one of the absolute mm. highlights of their mm. early career and weirdly not on there. Mm. Um, but, yeah, like, it's... It's fine. But with this, what I always feel, and actually they've always addressed this in a weird way, is why don't you just do this as a one-off live DVD? That, yeah, that would be, or yeah. one-off, or even just a live CD. Because that would, like, again, a DVD is more expensive. But surely a live recording would even be cheaper. And, if, and if you get time. the good live sound, you can miss out on some of those bad production things. Because... You get a decent live recording in a decent venue with like the right equipment and stuff like that. It's going to sound heavy. It's going to sound, you know, you see a band live sounds heavier than it ever will on record. Yeah, and that actually might lead to a brilliant album. I don't yeah. think doing yeah. this ever would. Um, Can't think of any examples where re-recording of a different vocalist has ever worked. Oh god, like the really. the redo of Exodus's Bonder by Blood is horrible. Yeah, I, it yeah. really didn't work. Um, 
that Annihilator one was just yeah, it, it all, yeah it never really feels like you capture because the idea is you know you do a different vocalist you can particularly with this one you can get a real huge improvement on it but you end up never recreating what made the original one really interesting mm. and you might improve on one thing of it but something else will be lacking now they, so they have addressed this to an extent because um, the early stuff was super popular in Japan they've actually reformed as a separate band called Black Earth with basically their original lineup, I think Charlie's in it still though, mm. performing all the old stuff with Johan on vocals, oh. and they've released a live album called Black Earth. Oh, that's kind of cool. So um, I've not heard it because it's only released in Japan. I can yeah. find I can find like a stream of it anywhere. So it's just I will get it when I can because I'm really interested to hear yeah, if it's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that feels much more like the idea they should have been doing. This was earlier this year though, so. But yes, so that's Rule of All Evil. That comes to the final Angela album. And I think actually uh, Chris has... Oh no, no, Chris no, Chris was still in the band at this point. This is his final... Yeah, final Chris and Angela album. This mm. is Chaos Legions. Which sounds like I'm building up to something great. Chaos Legions is like an even more boring version of the previous <laughs> album. It's It's longer... It's 14 tracks, which is way too That's many. That's a long album, yeah. Um, it, there's the track Revenge is Mine. It is well worth checking out from this. Because the first riff of it is just the riff from Nemesis. It's, it's <laughs> like the same start, just ever so slightly changed. Yeah. It's just... like I was re-listening really to it, trying to see why I didn't get into it last time. And all I can say is, it's just forgettable. There's nothing they've done wrong. It, it's very similar in tone and style to all their previous albums. But it just doesn't land. Other than the track Fawns in My Flesh, which is really decent. Mm. Yeah, for whatever reason. I don't get it. It just didn't work. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you ever heard anything off no, this no, one. No, no. I don't think I've heard anything off of this. Yeah, it's like it didn't, it didn't get publicised all that much. Whereas, so what happens now is Chris leaves the band very soon after this, goes on to focus on his old solo project, Armageddon, who... Started out as a kind of melodic death metal band, very much in the vein of Arch Enemy. Turned into like a heavy metal, power metal band for an album, which I kind of like, although the lyrics are all over the place. <laughs> um, and then around, I think, 2015, released Captivity and Devourment, mm. which as you can always guess from the title, heavy as fuck. Like, yeah, got, yeah. got a full band back in. But it's like really... Arch Enemy kind of style heavy, but with him adding some clean vocals and other weird textures, like, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. it's the most interesting Amot led release since around Doomsday Machine for yeah, my, for my yeah. money. I really thought it was a very solid album. And unfortunately, at the same time, Arch Enemy brings Nick Cord in to replace uh, Chris. Nick Cord's relatively unknown guitarist, but clearly extremely talented guy. And Angela decides to step away from the live role, just done it for 10 years, had enough of it. Mm. And we get an Alyssa Whitegloss of um, The Agonist on um, on vocals. And now, Alyssa in any other band would be a great front person. She's got yeah. a great death metal voice. I've seen her live. She's great with a crowd. She's got a real presence. It's just Angela was slightly better at all of that. Yeah, the thing is she just has to live up to one of... The- you know, one of the greatest death metal vocalists that we know of. At least, yeah, I think for you and I, like she's one of those vocalists who was 
just awesome. Because I think we're both in the camp where we like people and go guttural and have a range, but also are understandable. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of that sort of thing. Like, she's fantastic. So, really, it's there's an awful lot of death metal vocalists who I love who would really struggle to live up to that. Yeah, yeah. And and the problem with this album is, um, so what we've lost here as well, we have to remember, as we said earlier, Chris was writing parts to go with Mike's. Mike has now really leapt into the, the main man role. Well, I guess uh, when you were saying earlier about Mike and Chris's writing, where Chris would always know exactly the sort of core patterns to put under the lead part, so we mm. have that sort of dynamic now doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And and we've got a lot of people who are new to the project, so probably more scared to contribute. Mm. Um, and Charlie and Daniel, although I think they did a bit of writing for Chaos Legion, have never really got involved in the writing process. And I think there's a real air with... Um, a War Eternal of trying to cover old ground trying to like uh, Alyssa for the whole album sounds like she's trying to be Angela and she's got a higher voice so it never quite works and she's yeah. never allowed to use she never seems allowed or hasn't allowed herself to use the bits of her range that would make her great yeah and just make something a little bit different and to put her own identity on some of the stuff which is exactly what Angela did when she joined Arch Enemy and it completely changed them as a band yeah yeah so it's just, and, and and particularly she, the thing she has over Angela is she's a very good clean singer, but mm. never uses it in Arch Enemy, and always feels a slight missed opportunity. Mm. Mm. All that being said, War Eternal is not a bad album. Like it's, it's got really good moments. It's just very much in that anthemic vein, and because it's a much like Chaos Legion, it's a lot of tracks all trying to be anthemic. When they're not landing, and it, maybe it's just not landing for me personally, but it just feels like not memorable. Like they're just saying, I don't want to revisit, and I don't know why this isn't up there with the other stuff. Like, yeah. as I say, maybe I've changed. Maybe I had time for that kind of sound on Doomsday Machine. Like I couldn't quite tell you how they diverged that much. But you know bits of War Eternal. Like yeah, equally... so, so, so I I think it's probably a combination thing. But I think there definitely is a change in Arch Enemy's writing style. Because listening back to some of the stuff off Doomsday Machine and you know, Wages of Sin, I can really get into it. Like It feels to me like, like kind of classic-y death metal, but really catchy, really interesting. I really like what's going on there. Listening to the latest album and this album, War Eternal, it's sort of, it's sort of fine. It's yeah, the problem yeah. with it. Like, nothing in it is bad. It's just there's nothing really to grab my attention. Whereas I listen to some of the earlier ones and I think, ah, oh, this is a really cool riff. I really like this. I have some great vocal work. All of this stuff really works together. Really catchy solos, that sort of thing, which just gets you into it. Whereas with these, it all just feels a little bland. Yeah. Um, so, the one thing that I will say for War Eternal, by far and away the best cover Arch Enemy ever had on an album. I was pointing this out, well... Rob's yeah, sort of pointing us out looking at the pile of CDs. Arch Enemy have never had good covers. Don't really have very many good covers, particularly the one from Wages of Sin, which is such a good album, is a really bad cover. It's got some kind of weird bird and a dog. Well, it's the Arch Enemy logo, which is like a circle with some spikes yeah. coming off it. But yeah, as Rob says, there's a bird, a dog. Uh, An eyeball with some hands. Jesus is the spatula. Oh, there's the hand whisk. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those ones with a yeah, handle, yeah, it's, like um, like being rested on Jesus's head. Forks, Lots a of tree, a skyscraper. There's all sorts of weird shit on it, but it's not in an entertaining art style. It's really quite bad, and and it's the worst of that era of like we found 
like you know when Photoshop started getting mm. becoming a thing, it's like we found an effect. So like let's, yeah, let's put loads of lens flare, have a whole thing in it. Yeah, and it does not work. There's so many death metal albums that have been ruined <laughs> by the let's do a CGI cover, and it like so, uh, that monstrosity one with the eggs is like <laughs> it's really really bad. It's like, becoming a bit of a weird theme with these shows that we're doing, where like with hypocrisy as well. Most of their album covers are dreadful, absolutely. and then there's a, there's like a couple in there which are really cool, like the earlier one. Yeah, Arch Enemy are the same. Pretty much all of their album covers are really quite bad, but yeah, to, to the extent of being kind of funny. But yeah, War Eternal, the one where it's very good cover. Now, interesting change that happens in the band and massively ties us into our 2005 podcast. Mm. Jeff Loomis joins the band, yeah, replacing Nick Cord. Yeah, so it links into both Opeth and um, Nevermore. Yeah, there, yeah, there is there is an interesting overlap between all these bands, which is very strange because they're, I'd say, highly different styles. Jeff Loomis living up to his, the reputation I decided to give him earlier um, <laughs> of like his chameleon playing ability yeah. completely fits his band much like uh, Frederick Atkinson before him um, yeah just has just sounds perfect in his band sounds exactly what what it needs and it's so different to say you listen to his solo albums and nothing like this now the problem we have they recorded as Stages Burn and this is the twofold thing I have issue with towards the end of their career, like, the end of the career up to date, is, As Sages Burn, is the most predictable set list ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, it's not just Arch Enemy, it's all bands that do this, of, like, if you're going to do a live set, throw in a couple for the hardcore fans. Yeah. Throw in a couple for people like me who know every one of your albums. Like, throw me a song I've not heard before. Mm, Like, of mm. course, play some of the live staples, but you don't have to play every single one. Yeah, particularly if you've got long enough sets to do a full DVD off as well. You've got time to throw in a couple of, like, oddball songs. For fuck's sake, Megadeth, play my last words live. (laughs) Like, come on! (laughs) It's going to get to the point where it's too late and it will sound dreadful if you even do it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But this this is the thing. It's You all must have a band you, you like out there who just... Not playing songs that would surprise you life, and mm. it's great to throw in an odd, weird one. And even if it is just for twenty percent of the audience, that twenty percent of the one who's probably spent the most money on you over the years, yeah. who have dedicated yeah. the most time, who will talk about it afterwards. Come on, bands like throw us a bone, throw us something weird and old. Like. <laughs> but yeah, so at Stage Burn, it's a really good live show. These guys are such a tight unit at this point. Jeff is completely gelled on it. Uh, Alyssa is an amazing front person. And that brings us on to the very recently released Will to Power, their sort of album out in 2017. And my notes for it basically is Sea War Eternal. Like, mm. essentially, Mike's still steering the ship. Jeff hasn't been allowed to write. So we all, a lot of people like myself thought, when Jeff joined the band, we were going to get the big change up. The big, like, oh, Jeff's going to introduce some in, of that yeah, nevermore. Yeah. Bring some, like other influences and just like write some stuff give some more fresh material for them but yeah he's only allowed to write solos or or in, I don't know if it allowed I think he's almost himself taking mm. this role I'm not really sure the dynamics there but... yeah and whatever it is it just feels like a little bit of a shame because we know Jeff Loomis can write some amazing stuff yeah yeah and I'd say comparing this album to War Eternal I found it grabbed me more I found the riffs were better the songs were more immediately catchy it had less songs that dropped me out of it. Like, there was a couple of um, 
tracks on War Eternal, they really went for a catchy chorus and it just missed and mm. I, I didn't have much time for it. This there's more that like really grabs me. I, I quite like the the Eagle Flies Alone single. Yeah, like, that was a single I remember listening to that a few weeks ago. Is uh, yeah, like it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, still, I think just suffers from being a little bit bland. Like it's it's not enough to convince me to buy the album. But listen, to it, I was like, this is better than I was expecting. I was telling me, I, I like this riff. This is a good riff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, that's basically it for Arch Enemy. I still think they have the ability to release another Wage of Sin. I think they just need to rediscover the heavy a bit. Mm. Re- try to move away from doing catchy choruses all the time. Like go for a few more first Deadly Sin style songs. Just go, go crazy and really aim for the riffs and don't worry about the solos quite as much. And and yeah, maybe let Jeff loose on something. I guess right? this is sort of just speculation, but like if you're going to have these anthems, just sort of like let them come as opposed to trying to force them. You know, if you just go for this sort of, you know this heavy stuff works, you know that it lands. And then maybe as it happened in the first place, you'll find that you do get these anthems that come out of it every now and then. Yeah, so basically uh, in answering the question, did they change on me? Is definitely them. I am never wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still going to insist it's both. Everything has changed. Nothing is the same. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's still still well worth checking out live though. Like I, I do think Arch Enemy are a really solid live show. But yeah, so that that brings us up to date with it. And uh, it was an interesting band to cover. I wanted to get in there because they're a band I knew so much about, but didn't really have an obvious outlet for on this podcast. Mm, I thought, mm. screw it, we'll put it in an episode, and if you truly hate Arch Enemy, hopefully you didn't sit through this. <laughs> um, and if you did, then maybe we've changed your mind on it slightly. Like, um, So before we... To play us out, we're going to do a track from Tyrants of the Rising Sun, the second live album, and it's another song of Wages of Sin. Come to that in a moment. But yeah, as always, always plugs, like, again... Please contact us on Facebook. Let's know, like, let's know great gateway bands because you must yeah, have had some others yeah. who came through. Well, like, I mean, I, I'm with these style of episodes as well. I'm considering potentially going through the whole of Bathory's back catalogue. Mm. If you think that'd be a good idea, if you've got other bands who you think would be cool to just maybe not to uh, analyze one particular interesting album, but to go through the whole thing and just say how have these guys evolved, what's happened, what's been interesting. Um, yeah, let us know about that. Or bands that got you into metal, because that's always really interesting to hear the bands that got people into it. You know, maybe it was Bullet for My Valentine or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Bands that maybe we don't look back on as fondly as we did then. But if that's the thing that got you into more extreme metal, then that's really cool. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, hit us up on Facebook for us Breakfast Metal. Um, if you want to send a more personal message, Phil'sBreakfastMetal at gmail.com. Got a Twitter account as well. Phil's Breakfast Metal again. And, um... Yeah. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, do that. All the it, podcasts I listen to say to do that, so you should do that. And it massively helps our ego. <laughs> we'd love to get Star Racing on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, whenever we... Yeah, we, we got one review now, so we, Phil sends that to me, and I think, oh, yeah, that, that's brightened up my day. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to leave you with what I think is a real highlight, and hopefully should point out not only that Wages Sim was great, but as a live actor, they were top of their game at this point in time. This is Dead Bury the Dead from uh, Torrance of the Rising Sun live in Japan.